number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where interesting, intriguing, and exciting people engage in unscripted exchanges of ideas, stories, and perspectives. It's not an interview. It's a powerful conversation. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where today I'm hoping that we can have a conversation that will help you boycott some of your old ways of thinking, and more importantly, just really get you thinking about the relationship you have with this thing called the world, life, planet Earth, whatever it happens to be, because we all have a relationship with so many things in our life, and sometimes it's important to stop and just ask ourselves, what is that relationship and can I improve upon it so I can lead myself to greater happiness? And to help me do that today, I have Jamil Giovanni, who is just such an interesting guy. He's got a crazy story of what he's gone through in life. And, uh, you know, he grew up in a single parent home and had to work hard to uh, make ends meet when he finally got into the workforce. And uh, instead of going kind of down that path that many kids can go down, myself included, when they're maybe growing up in a, let's call it a not-so-privileged world, Um, he didn't go down that path. He actually ended up going to graduate from Yale Law School. Not a bad school, if you ask me. Um, uh, he's Since then, uh, Jamil has focused on issues that impact youth, immigrants, and low-income families. He's also the founder of the Citizen Empowerment Project, which is a public education uh, organization leading initiatives related to policing, racial profiling, democratic participation, voter turnout, and economic development. And if that's not enough, Jamil wrote a critically acclaimed book called Why Young Men. It's received all kinds of international attention. It's an amazing book, uh, and that's the reason why all the big outlets want to hear him speak. He's been on BBC, CBC, CTV, TVO, and How Lucky Are We? He's now appearing on my podcast. Welcome, Jamil. Thank you, Stuart. That was a that was a great introduction, and thanks for having me. <laughs> you know, it's funny, and it's like when people hear introductions like that, they probably assume that you're like ninety five years old. <laughs> <laughs> but you're certainly not. Are you? You're you're still in your thirties, aren't you? Yeah, I actually just turned thirty one a couple months ago. Oh my god, it's always so funny because I find because I'm forty five years old, and when I meet and, and speak to people who are uh, you know let's say in their early thirties or mid thirties who have done as much as you've done. There is that part of me, and don't feel bad when I say this. I, I find myself going, "Have I done enough with my life?" <laughs> <laughs> do you do you ever get people saying that to you? Like, do you get people saying, "How is it that you've been able to accomplish so much in such a short period of time?" Yeah, I, I, I have I have been asked that before, and I, I it's funny because I t- I never really perceive myself as someone who's done a lot, and maybe that's kind of the key is that if you're always um, if you're always surrounding yourself by people or reminding yourself of what other people have done that you haven't, then it kind of keeps you humble and, and kind of working hard. Like I follow someone like, you know, the rock Dwayne Johnson on Instagram. And it's like every day I feel like I've only done about a quarter of what he's accomplished. You know, it's <laughs> know. like this guy's up at four 30 in the morning, like lifting a thousand pounds and then he- <laughs> movie and you know does a tv appearance and uh then wrestles you know it's like i I, uh so i I always remind myself of people who are really high performers because i think it's um 
kind of keeps you keeps you working hard yourself. It does, doesn't it? I, I, I'm always amazed when I see people like him or anyone else being interviewed, and just flippantly they'll say, "Oh yeah, well, I mean, God, a couple of hours ago I was just in Paris, and um, just <laughs> you know, it's like, what did you just say? You just came in from Paris, and you're wearing that beautiful suit, and you're now after this going to go to the Grammys? Did I just hear you say that? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So, Meanwhile, you look like you got eight hours of sleep the night before, right? And, so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, just, and you're still feeling tired. Yeah. How? What did you say though in your own life? What drives you? Like, what makes you um, when you when you think about the next thing that you want to do? What is that driving force? Well, you know, a lot of it is is pre- I think starts from a very personal place, which is, you know, I, I feel like I very easily could have been someone who never lived up to his potential. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there were a lot of kind of obstacles in my life that that could have really weighed me down. And a lot of people who didn't see me as someone deserving of opportunity or support. And so a lot of what motivates me is just like a desire to want to, you know, identify those people um, in other contexts and who are who are who are maybe equally as vulnerable to to never living up to their potential. So I spend a lot of my time just trying to create programs or deliver messages or kind of affect the world in a way that I think might increase the likelihood of young people who are kind of lost along their way to to find themselves. And that that keeps me pretty, you know, motivated and passionate because there's no shortage of, I think, high potential young people in the world who are at serious risk of never kind of knowing what they're capable of. So is it a constant reminder to yourself of just how lucky you are to have the opportunities that you do and for that reason you just you just don't want to miss them? Yeah, I mean part of it is that like I I know what it's like to not have opportunities so I really appreciate anything that comes my way, but I also think that there are I just feel very I guess maybe like grounded in that experience I had as like a teenager where you're just where you're frustrated and you feel alone. And I think a lot about like the other people who probably feel that. And, and, and I would love to be able to kind of, you know, when the time comes to look back on my life and my career, be able to say that like I did what I could to fight for other people to not experience that kind of alienation, you know? And so it's like every day I can encounter people, whether it's like at the mall or in my own family or at a workplace or at a school I go to, like you just encounter people who are experiencing that. And so you, you, what I think when you boil down life's challenges to those like kind of individual experiences, you realize there's probably about six or seven billion things that you could do, right? Because there's 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 that many people whose lives you hope you might make better. So it's a real responsibility on some level to 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 do this for these people because you really do get where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Like I I you know I I'm I put myself in situations every day where I'm reminded of what's not working well in our society and I think that keeps me feeling that responsibility really, you know, intensely. Like I just I don't I it, I I've 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 been lucky I think to to not get lost in um, the good things that have happened in my life and be pretty well grounded in the times of my life that have been hard. And that keeps me, I think, having some perspective that like, you know, I when I was working in corporate law, for example, like there were moments where it was very obvious to me, I could have lost sight of how other people live, because I had such a 
nice life and you know it was making good money and people you know doing things for you and it, it's always funny that the more you have it seems the easier the um everyone else is on you you know and right. the more free stuff you get the more the more you already have right and so it's um you know, I had when I had those kind of moments, I think I became aware of how you can get lost in um, excess, right? You can get lost in what's going well to the point where you don't see what's what's not working for other people. And so I, I've I've been conscious of that, and I've been very lucky to kind of be reminded of that, and that keeps me focused. I think. Well, and you know, let's talk about that right now because obviously you've just gone through. Um, well, it's not so obvious for the listeners because they have no idea what I say, but I know you've just gone through a crazy situation in life. One of those ones that so many people either know someone who's gone through it or has gone through it themselves, and that is uh, about with cancer. And talk about a wake up call. Talk about a holy shit. Like let's put things into perspective moment. So give my listeners just a bit of a perspective of what you've kind of gone through and, and and I'm happy to say that I'm speaking to you in a day when uh the you're you're you know you've kicked cancer's ass it's no longer around so so tell us what's 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 happened there yeah cer- certainly it's easier to uh talk about cancer when you're on the other side of it um right. you know and and I'm 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 conscious of that because if you asked me this question you know six months ago I I think it would have been a lot harder for me to to talk about it yeah. um but you know, so uh, um, about a year from our conversation now, so in February 2018, I, uh, you know, got I was diagnosed with cancer, and and I went to the ER, um, the emergency room, thinking I was going to get you know antibiotics prescribed to me for what I thought was like the flu. Mm-hmm. So I was just completely not thinking that that you know that I had a serious illness of any kind, and right. the diagnosis kind of hit me pretty hard. I mean, not that I think anyone's ever prepared for a cancer diagnosis, but I think the younger you are, the more you probably think you're, um, you know, you're far away from that kind of illness. So, so yes, that, that, that hit me, that hit me pretty hard. And it, it, it happened about a month before my, my book was first published in Canada. So I had a very kind of singular vision. Like I was so focused on the book and, you know, the release of it and the media appearances and all that, that I was, um, kind of, my blind spots are not being checked, if that makes sense. And I think, you know, and I, and I think that's, that, that's a larger pattern that a lot of people who are perhaps motivated by altruism in some way, or who work in the charitable or nonprofit sector, like I do, um, you know, you're so focused on on the needs of other people and you're so hopeful that you're helping others that you don't always take care of yourself, right? right. And and that's kind of where I was at, at that point in my life. So the diagnosis was tough. And, you know, I went through about five months of chemotherapy. The kind of cancer I had was um, a blood-based cancer, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it was um, considered stage four, but even at even that severe, uh, it's one of the more treatable cancers, um, thankfully. Yeah. So chemotherapy worked, and, and that took about five months, and then I did another two months of radiation. So it was a really long, gradual process. And then probably the hardest part was after all that was over, around the fall of, of 2018, I had to spend another kind of four months waiting to hear whether um, whether I was cured or in remission or not. Right. And, uh, that was honestly even tougher because the chemo and the radiation is tough on you physically, especially when it's stage four, because they hit you with kind of the highest dosages of both that they can. But, but, um, the waiting game afterward is, was really trying on like a psychological and emotional level because, you know, 
our, you know, I think this is true for most of us, like our imaginations can be worse than reality, you know? And so you, when you have that space to just imagine the worst case scenarios, you will, you will fill that void with things that scare you and frighten you and, you know, stress you out. And that's a big part of what I was dealing with. So, um, almost, almost exactly a year from when I was diagnosed is when I found out that I'm in remission, which was probably the, you know, most relieving news I've ever gotten in my life. How did you get that news? uh, was it over the phone? Were you in the office? Uh, no, I had to go in to see my oncologist. So they um, they scanned me on a Monday morning, and I had to wait until a Thursday afternoon to find out the results. So that was a pretty brutal oh, week. Bastards. So, yeah. I, I tried to play a lot of video games and spent a lot of time with my dog to right. uh, distract myself. Exactly. I'm going to take up running today, I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so – I went in on a Thursday afternoon and it's always hard because I, I love my oncologist. She's great. And um, one of the reasons why she's so good is that you can't tell from how she greets you what your what the news is, you know, so <laughs> right. like reading into all her body language and Poker face. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm like thinking like, oh, did her receptionist like greet me in a positive way or was she <laughs> melancholy? Like, and then eventually, um, you know, my doctor, she, uh, she told me, you know, this is kind of the best case scenario because it was it was good news. There's a lot of versions of good news I could have got, and this was kind of the best one because it means I have to go to the hospital um, very infrequently right. moving forward, which is a huge bonus because, um, you know, that takes a lot out of you, like just Thanks. going in for those scans and the uncertainty and all that. Like, wow. I'm just – I'm really glad I, I don't have to worry as much as I have been. Oh, yeah. Did you, did you guys like – I'm just – this is my own curiosity. Like, do, do, do doctors and patients get up and give each other a big hug in these moments? Yeah, we, 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 did, a, we did a big high five. Nice. Um, yeah, which was good. And, right you know, because – because because your doctors and nurses are kind of there with you through it all. Right. And, you know, they um, I, I really commend their ability to kind of manage the 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 stress and emotional intensity for so many patients at the same time, because, um, you know, it's it's got to be heart wrenching. Right. To have people at all these different stages of their lives and with all these different things going on, come into your office and be the person who has to kind of help them through what is going to probably the most difficult period of their life. Um, so yeah, so we did a big high five and it just was like, it felt like a real celebratory moment. And I could see in her face too, like the, the relief, like she was, Mm. she was really happy for me. And, um, you know, I think it meant a, it meant a lot to her that she was able to kind of see me through it, this from the beginning to the end. Dude, you know, I had a situation where I went into a dermatologist about two weeks ago, and I had this weird kind of thing on my collarbone that, that surfaced, and who knows what it is. I don't know. And it could have been from one of the hotels I've been sleeping in. And um, and I thought – and so she says, ooh, yeah, let's, let's take a look at it. And then and while she's there, she looks at my shoulder, and she says – but while we're here, what's going on over there? And of course, your brain goes, oh, no, what's going on? And she's like, yeah, I think we need to take a biopsy of that and, uh, you know, check it for cancer. And that was the first time I'd ever had any type of remotely close kind of, um, I guess, uh, conversation around that in my life. And I'm the same as you. I'm like, oh, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm going to be fine. And and as I speak to you right now, I've got the results, and it's benign. It was just a, it looks like it's sun damage, um, and I'm very I'm a very freckly guy, so I have a lot of these things on my body. But I can't even imagine like when I got the phone call and the in the ten days I had to wait and the stress that I'd gone through. I can't even imagine. That, that's just like a like a, a pretty routine biopsy that a lot of people get. They do many of these a day. I can't even imagine what it must have been like for you 
in your situation, which is 10 times um, bigger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- that's a good, that's a good example of, of like, I think you got a slice there of what it's like, because that 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 uncertainty really is is rough on, I think, the human mind. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and even in my case, like, because I spent so much time at hospitals, like I saw a lot of people go through variations of what you just described, too. And it's like, you know, seeing people who are battling breast cancer, for instance, who have, you know, four or five kids, like, yeah. that's so like, like, you know, for however hard my situation was, like, I'm fortunate to say I don't have I don't have kids. I don't have people depending on me. And and that would have added, I think, another like real layer of stress that that, you know, I saw other people go through. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, it is it is a rough, you know, it's, a, it's 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 rough, but it's, I think, even worse when you have to filter what you're going through through the needs of others, right? Well, and that's that was a, the first thing that crossed my mind. Yeah, like it's, yeah. And I and I, I looked at it and I went into intellectually. I'm like, well, I know that you know people I've known they get these little biopsies and they usually come back and they're pretty they're fine. Um, but the very first thought was like, you know, you, your head goes, what if like just what if that was something? And I I thought about my two children and I thought, oh my god, like God, like I, I my 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 concern about them financially was not a problem because I've I've set myself up in a way where if I die, there's a, there's a pretty good insurance payout for my kids. Like I've, I've deliberately paid a lot towards insurance on the off chance that if like, hopefully no knock on wood, I get hit by a car tomorrow. Financially, they're okay. That wasn't my concern. My concern was, uh, and this is me and my ego, like who's going to teach them about life? You know, my partner will do it, but who's going to teach them how to, you know, properly shake someone's hand. Who's going to teach them how to, you know, order uh, uh, food and be polite to the server while they're doing it? Like all these things start crossing your mind. So yeah, you're right. Like I, it's 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 horrible when you think about some of the people that uh, are in these situations and they, and they do have kids. And this leads me to another question. Though, so like, d- does does life seem fair to you when you go through through something like this, or when you see that woman with four or five kids and she maybe doesn't make it? That is an excellent question because I think fairness is something I've thought about in so many different contexts, right? And so you think about like, you know, a fair life for a kid who's born into, you know, poverty or goes to a school that's inadequate. It's like, that's not a fair start to life, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or you think about fairness in the sense that like some of us, you know, are, are kind of given um, a clearer path to uh, to success than others because of various barriers or obstacles or discrimination or whatever, right? And so, um, so fairness is something I always thought about in a in a broad way, but physical illness or I suppose mental illness um, as well is is one of those things where fairness starts to take a very different turn because you could be the wealthiest person in the world and your kids could go to the greatest school you know on the earth and um, but you, you know, you're not immune from, from being sick and there's a certain kind of gut punch that, that we're all vulnerable to, and there's nothing we can do to escape it. Right. I mean, yeah. it's just, almost, it is the kind of adversity that follows us, um, wherever we go. Right. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of fairness, it's all relative, but I, I think the, the way I've come to think about it is like, you know, fairness is more about 
you know, how, how well supported you are and how much opportunity you have to overcome that adversity rather than avoiding it altogether. Because I think that's that if we define fairness as kind of like a lack of obstacles, then I think we're setting ourselves up for disappointment because I don't think anyone lacks obstacles completely, but, um, yeah, no matter who you are, something's going to come your way that you're going to have to overcome. Exactly. And if you, you know, if you take the example of like, you know, being sick, right? Like certainly I have an appreciation for what a universal healthcare system does for us now that I didn't have, you know, two years ago, like the, there, there's, there is a fairness that I think is embedded in building a healthcare system where people have minimum expectations of what they're going to get as treatment. Um, so that would be an example of like, fairness being something that's tangible like we can't we can't guarantee you're never going to get sick but if we can build a society where if you are a 31 year old like or 30 when i got diagnosed who you know thinks you're invincible and probably wouldn't pay you know into an insurance plan if you had the choice because you would think that you know you don't have nothing to worry about um that you know you're you're not sentenced to you know an early death right like i would have been if I didn't have a healthcare system around me that could take care of me. So, um, I'm, I'm really appreciative of that. And I think that like, I hope that that would be a clear example for like how we think about fairness, which is like, you know, we need to make sure we've got systems around us that do, that do a good, a a good job of delivering a minimum level of support to everybody. I agree. I agree. So now speaking of, of fairness, then with the work that you do and the people that you advocate for, what is, um, uh, an unfairness, if that's even a word, but let's just call it, the, let's say it is a word right now, uh, an unfairness that's happening in, in the world that we live in or the country that we live in that you're trying to write, uh, something that we're not doing well on that we need to um, make a difference on. Well, tell us about some of that work. Yeah, well, a lot of the work I do is trying to um, help build, I guess, I think like leadership capacity in the lives of young people who, because of life circumstances or their own uh, understanding of what they're capable of, don't see themselves as leaders or high potential people. Mm. So what that looks like in practice is like in, in neighborhoods that have high concentrations of various sorts of challenges. So high concentrations of family breakdown, of low performing schools, public schools, of uh, unemployment, uh, public housing that is, you know, poorly managed by uh, government bodies. Like when I look at neighborhoods, we have that high concentration of public policy failings, cultural issues, family issues. I look at those as like young people who are, you know, potentially buried underneath a set of problems that they might not know how to navigate through, right? To rise to the top and to be the best versions of themselves. So in those neighborhoods, and whether that's in my hometown of Toronto, um, or in other places that I have the privilege of visiting that are, you know, big cities or rural areas. I try to bring education programs and messaging that helps build a capacity to overcome adversity, but also to understand yourself as a person who has gifts, has a responsibility to find those gifts and share them with the world. And, um, also hopefully in the process, help other people um, overcome some of those same challenges that you're trying to deal with, right? And so a lot of what that looks like in my world is helping people with build the advocacy skills to speak for themselves and fight for what's right, articulate um, their problems, 
uh, understand where air- levels of government and public policy are relevant to their problems, but equally as important, understand where government can't fix things for you and where that's maybe something that's more of a community or family action. Um, and then and then be that leader, right? And go out and set an example. A lot of what I try to do is, is understand mentorship as this um, unavoidable uh, social good that we either take advantage of or we discard. But the truth is that like, just by living your life, you're setting an example, uh, whether it's good or bad, and hopefully we want it to be good. And if we make everyone kind of understand themselves as having that kind of power at minimum, right? You might not have a lot of money, you might not have institutional power, but just by making good choices and treating people well, you're setting an example that someone younger than you could benefit from. And be and being able to remind everyone, regardless of your circumstances, that that's a power we have, I think is such an it's such a an inspiring thing for kids who grow up thinking they have nothing, that they have no no contribution to make to the world. And why, in many cases, do these young people coming from these types of neighborhoods feel like? they don't have any power? Is it because they haven't seen, they've seen their parents become so oppressed over the years or they just see nothing ever happening in their neighborhood that's positive? Like what causes them to not believe that, they're, that they have power or that they can be leaders? Yeah, so, so a lot of it I would say is like what you could call like kind of structural issues, right? So not being in a dynamic economic environment, not being able, seeing your parents not uh, change their lives, right? Not seeing them earn more money over a lifetime or get a promotion or go from living in public housing to, to renting and perhaps even owning something one day. Mm. Like a lot of it is the stagnancy that um, poverty and diminished economic opportunity creates around you. And when you don't see change happening around you, when you don't see opportunity, when you don't see dynamism, often you internalize that. And so you say, well, you know, my mom's life didn't change over the course of 30 years. Why would I expect mine to? Right. And so it, it can it, it's a lot of it is that structural piece around you. But there are also kind of cultural elements of it, too, which is something I'm always very sensitive to, because I think a lot of the time people with good intentions, right, who want to you know, understand those struggles, who want to tell a kid about the unfairness of the world that they experience, they deliver it. It, the message in a way that I think is actually discouraging, which okay. is to say it, it almost like is underscoring how powerless you are. And so instead of reminding you, for instance, that, yeah, 90 percent of your life you can't control. But what can you do with that extra 10 percent that might change your circumstances, that might give you a better shot at a better life? Um, what do they, focus, what, what, what do they on, Yeah. What do they say like, in, as opposed to that? Yeah, they, they focus only on the 90%, right? And so everyone, instead of being an individual, you're part of like a collective group. And that group has like a, a history of oppression and unfairness. And so you almost see yourself as like being um, destined to struggle as part of this kind of collective, as opposed to someone who has individual agency, right? And there's always a danger of over, overstating individual agency, right? Because we know that that can't solve every problem and that's not enough um, in a society to allow for people's lives to get better, but it's a big part of it. Right. And I, I just to get, to break it down into specifics, like when I'm around kids, for instance, a lot of the time they want to talk to me about the neighborhood they grow up in, or they don't get along with their parents, or, um, they don't feel like they have the money they wanted. They don't get to go on vacations. You know, they're frustrated for, in some cases, very legitimate reasons, 
But when you say to them, well, who do you hang out with when the bell rings at the end of the school day? Who do you walk home with? Who do you play basketball with? I mean, all of that is stuff they get to choose. They don't, no one chooses that for them. Right. They're, they have some power, right? And when you remind them of that, that there is some agency they do get to exercise and that agency matters, not just to the outcomes of their own lives, but to their family, to their community. Um, I think that's what I try to do is emphasize what they can control. Because I think when you forget what you can control, that's when you start to, you know, lose sight of your own potential. And do you, when you remind them of the things that they do have control and it seems like if I picked up on this just now, but help me clarify this if you can, um, do you then, you're saying that you show them the correlation between, hey, you know what, you choosing who you walk home with after school actually has an impact on your community or your life in this way? Like you actually get them to see how, oh yeah, there actually is a cause and effect here? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and in some ways, like I'm a walking example of how some of those different decisions tend to play out over the course of, you know, a a young lifetime, right? And so I, I... I do talk to them about, you know, how your peer group will shape a lot of your decisions, uh, how, you know, there's a competition of for of influences around you mm-hmm. and you have the power to choose what messages you allow into your mind and your heart. Um, and you have to take that power really seriously because that will shape your morals, your ethics, your your compass for how you navigate the world. Um, so, yeah, I, I talk to them a lot about that stuff. And I think that, in, in, in you know, I, in some ways the pendulum has has swung in my view, at least, kind of too far in the direction of talking about structural barriers and systemic issues and whether that's systemic racism and discrimination or uh, issues with the economy and poverty. Like, you know, there was a time where I think if I was 20 years older, uh, in my 30s, I would be saying, oh, like, we're not talking about those things enough. But Mm -hmm. I think we've, we've swung so far towards those subjects that a lot of people just are forgetting that, oh, there's also things you can do for yourself, right? Like the, not every problem you face is the result of some like big system in the sky somewhere, but a lot of it is about your own agency and what you what you do for yourself. And um, so I try to balance out that pendulum. Like I, I, I know that in different communities that pendulum is kind of swinging one way or the other. And when I get in front of a group of young people, I try to figure out, you know, where, what message have they been hearing and how do I kind of challenge them to maybe think a little bit differently? So it's basically, you're saying to them on some level, Hey, yes, if you want, we can sit here and we can focus on what is true without a doubt. There is uh, systemic racism in the amount of, let's say young people of color who will be accepted into the best schools in North America. That is true. And that is real. And we should be angry about that. And we should definitely do what we can to change that. But in the meantime, there are schools that are great schools that you can actually be accepted in, and you have that power. You can go to that school. You can still get a great degree. You can use that degree to get into a position of, let's say, financial uh, security that allows you the time to then fight, I don't know, the, the, the systemic racism that is existing in the other schools. Is that kind of like the, the way you're approaching it here? Yeah, that, that, that is exactly right. And, and that to me is what you know the value of the education I got kind of showed me is like that there are – ways to fix the world that don't require a utopia to exist, right? That we can, even even as we work through the, the bigger imperfections, 
you can still do something for yourself in the meantime. And, and, and it's important not to lose sight of that. And how hard is it to convince these young people of this? Are they open to it or are they, are they saying, oh, yeah, Jamil, yeah, it worked for you. They'll, they'll come up with some excuse. You're just smarter than me. You know, or, or are they like, yeah, man, you know what? This is awesome. I, I never thought of it that way. This, this is a great question. I mean, mo- most of the time they react incredibly positively to that message because okay. I think they, you know, as a lot of young people are, um, you know, they, they're, there's an anti-authoritarian kind of streak in them, right? And so they, I think they like the idea that there are things that they could do for themselves. And I think they benefit from being reminded of that. Mm-hmm. They're also young people – you know, prior to university, let's say, tend to not be very ideological. And so they're open to being challenged and to to thinking about themselves in new ways. I find once people hit the university stage of their lives, um, and certainly not everyone goes to university, but universities do tend to be the place where ideology starts to creep in. Mm -hmm. And so as people get older, I think they're less open-minded to, um, you know, thinking in new ways. And, and so the young people I spend my time with are, are a breath of fresh air by comparison, because even when they disagree with me, I think there's a genuine effort to understand what I'm saying. And then, you know, they'll take it apart and they'll maybe, you know, pick certain parts of it that they want to keep and the rest of it they'll discard. And, you know, I, I love seeing them go through that process of filtering someone's message to see what's, what's useful in it for them. Um, but as we get older, I think we just get a little bit more tribal, in how we think about these things. And so that's, you know, what we've just been talking about. If I go and say that on a stage in front of, you know, 200 adults, I'm going to be heard in very different ways, depending on who is hearing me and depending on their own ideological slants. Right. Right. And so the challenge I face is more so with the adults. It's more so with the people who are shaping the world around, you know, the youth rather than from the youth themselves. Right. Is it because they're just so set in their ways? Yes, it is. And also because, you know, there's also like bigger, I think, political, you know, uh, dramas playing out, you know, at the mm-hmm. same time. Like there are people who really believe that the minute you remind a young person that, you know, structural barriers don't ex- are not the end all and be all of what your life can be like, the minute you say that there are people who want to put you in a box, right? They want to say, well, you're, you're giving us, you know, right wing conservative talking points and you're saying you should pull yourself up from your bootstraps. And I'm like, <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's a little bit more nuanced and complicated than that. And then, and then just the inverse, there are people when I say, yeah, like there is unfairness and there is discrimination in the world and not everyone is starting off from an equal uh, position, then um, you have, you know, people who say, oh, this is like, you know, left wing social justice, you know, propaganda. And, 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 and you know, we have a fair society that's colorblind. And it's like, well, no, that's also an oversimplification. Um, and so I, you know, the, the reality is I spend way too much of my time probably <laughs> arguing with people in one of those two camps. Um, and I enjoy it a lot more when you get to, you know, find people I think understand there's probably something valuable from both of those perspectives right right so what was it like for you then okay being uh, a man of color and you're there you are at yale university um is, is, can i am, am, am i can i say that and assume that it was a a largely caucasian student body there or am i wrong i've never been to yale so what was it like there yeah well so what what i what i think the top universities in the u.s do really well is um, in part because of, you know, policies with this specific goal in mind, they do tend to be 
uh, representative in terms of like race and ethnicity of the wider population. So okay. if okay. you're if the American population, let's say, is like 14 percent black, um, you're probably going to get about 14 percent of Yale student body is going to be black. Right. OK. Um, sometimes it's a little bit less. Sometimes it's a little bit more. But they, they aim for that, um, I think. And they if they don't achieve it in a given year, they will do the important work of understanding why. And and um, so I think that's that is something I would say I get, would give them credit for where they don't do um, where diversity is lacking is more so on class. So a lot of those like black students, for example, went to really, really good, wealthy high schools right. and, uh, you know, come from like, you know, the wealthiest zip codes in the United States. And, and, and so for me coming from, you know, a, a working class, mostly newcomer community in Toronto, like I'm, I, I actually felt it was as difficult to relate to black students from wealthy backgrounds as it was to relate to white students from wealthy backgrounds. The, the race element, um, was, was, I guess not as easy for me to, um, kind of look past. It was more like, you know, my best friend from law school is a guy who calls him, who identifies as a hillbilly, right? Like he, <laughs> he, he grew up in a poor part of like, you know, Midwestern U, uh, USA in, um, you know, Kentucky and Ohio. And we bonded over our kind of what I would call like a mutual discomfort, right. Of like interesting being at these events and, you know, people are serving like wine and cheese and I don't know what anything's called or how to, how to talk about it or right. I don't know how to order something. I just like, it was just so awkward for me and, and felt very exclusive um, that anyone who could kind of understand that I felt was someone that I really gravitated toward. Right. And yeah. so, um, a lot of my friends, including a lot of the black students, but come from, I think that, that perspective more than a racial diversity one. Um, but interestingly enough, all around Yale, right. In the kind of new Haven, Connecticut area. And this is true for a lot of the big universities in the U S Duke, Harvard, you know, Stanford, there are nearby areas where you have a lot of like working class people, most of whom are um, black or Latino. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they moved to those areas, you know, for jobs and the jobs have been declining, right, in terms of manufacturing work. Mm -hmm. And so they're just kind of still around those universities. And um, it makes for a weird dynamic because then you see kind of race and class overlap pretty strongly. And um, it creates a weird vibe because if you're someone like me who, you know, still to this day in some cases, but certainly when I was in law school, like I dressed like I did growing up, like baggy jeans and hoodies and right. Timberland boots, right? So people thought I was like a, a person who lived in New Haven <laughs> and was coming onto campus um, <laughs> as an outsider. And that's where you would get that like race and class kind of convergence where you realize if you're a black guy, but you dress like uh, a non-Yale person, quote unquote, mm -hmm. then you're going to get treated like an outsider everywhere you go. And that was where I got probably the most resistance to feeling like I belong there. Interesting. Did it ever make you find yourself thinking, well, I know how to play the game. I could change the way that I dress if I want to be able to get certain things. Or did you, <laughs> or did you take the attitude of, no, this is who I am? Yeah, that um, you know, sir, well, look, I'll, I would wear a suit for you know a job interview, of course, sure. but you know, on the day to day, like, yeah, it made me double down. I was like, you know what, like, <laughs> because 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 my feeling was, 
at the end of the day, I'm I, I am entitled to like be on that campus right. and I am entitled to go into those buildings. So I'm safe, right? Like when security would bother me or follow me around, I knew that at, all I had to do was pull out a student card and they would leave me alone. And that actually but, happened. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like anytime the worst was like I had really bad reception in my um apartment. Okay. Uh, and I lived on campus for one year. So anytime I needed to take an important phone call, I would go outside. <laughs> and if I was standing outside of my building on the phone, the Yale security and the New Haven police would always come bother me. And it was incredibly embarrassing because like I would be on the phone like talking with somebody about an internship. Right. And I have the police like interrupt the phone call. <laughs> and it was just – yeah, it was just like really like awkward. And, well, that's like, – kind of, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I filed complaints about it and, you know, like I, I hope helped them understand how they could better interact with people. Right. But um but yeah, it was it was brutal. Like it, it was just like one of those things where um you know, it was almost comical to a point where I could, I knew as soon as I took a phone call outside, it was just a countdown until somebody would come bother me. Right. And, um, and would, be, would this be somebody you think calling in and saying there's this guy of color outside on the phone? And, or do you think that they're just on their patrol and they see you and they're like, okay, what's that guy doing? Uh, I, I know both happened. Yeah. Really? Like I know some cases it was a phone call. Um, and in some cases it was just them driving by. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so funny. Like as a white guy, I mean, I understand this intellectually in, in a sense that I've read all the articles. I've talked to all my friends of color and, you know, you, it just, but we just never, we're just never going to get it. Like what that would be like to have a police officer pull up and want to have a conversation with you. And that's happened to you many times. Like that's, that's your world. And that's the world of many other people of color. Yeah, it does. It, it you know, it, it happens you know, far more often than we would like, right? Uh, when I say we, I mean kind of a collective we of mm-hmm. people who are concerned about these things. Um, so, and yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a real issue. But so, so this, this is a really practical example, though, of what, I, what we were kind of talking about before, which is that this is one of those kind of structural issues, right? That we know that police encounters for black people, let's say, in, in Canada and the United States and, and other countries um, is, uh, you know, a disproportionate reality. We also know that based on studies that if you're a black person, a black man in particular, and you interact with the police, you're more likely to have, um, an un, an unhealthy interaction where there's negative words being exchanged, where you're handcuffed, where you're pushed around, right? Like that, that is empirically kind of proven. Right. But the challenge comes in like, so what do we, what does that mean then for like how we prepare for, uh, success in our society, right? Do we, um, do, do we see that as a social ill that needs to be remedied? Yes. But do we allow for that experience to completely define the expectations for how a young black boy grows up in our society? So he grows up with what will then turn into an irrational fear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because he will be inundated with shootings and and those interactions going far worse than they than they usually do. Right. And then and then tell him that like because there are police officers who will be prejudiced toward him, that somehow means that like his expectations of himself should be lower, right? right? That he shouldn't work as hard or that he shouldn't try his best because that's that's essentially the slippery slope that gets created. People recognize the unfairness with the police, but then they say, okay, well, because of that, when a young black boy is 
um, shot in our city, we're not going to take that as seriously because we know their lives are difficult, right? And right. it's like, no, no, no. Like, like just because there's unfairness doesn't mean that like we should reduce our hopes for for that black boy. We should still expect him to do incredibly well and help him through his challenges and believe in him 100% and not associate his like morality with how other people treat him, but hope that he believes that he could be a positive leader no matter what happens to him, right? right. And I recognize that's not fair in the way we've been talking about it. Like that might mean that he goes through things that other people don't go through. And I totally recognize that. Yeah. But I I don't want him to think less of himself because of it, right? Right. It's such a it's such a progressive way of looking at it. And it, it feels to me as I'm listening to you speak about it, it almost feels like that is the only way to look at it because the alternative is to essentially become defeated. Yeah, that is exactly right. But that but the truth is that's what's happening. I mean, right. like like if you when we when when we talk about, you know, these these patterns in our society of intergenerational poverty, of, of broken families, of people attending schools that 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 are not effective places for kids to learn. You're seeing over the course of decades, in some cases in the United States, you're talking about over a century of this happening where unfairness becomes a reason to lower expectations and we wind up with this cycle of the world is unfair, therefore uh, we expect less of you. Right. And over a course of time, what that means is nobody's nobody changes. Everybody's just kind of stuck where they're at and and they're beaten down and treated unfairly. And the beauty that exists within them, the intelligence, the power, the potential gets lost in the shuffle. Oh, man. And so it's interesting because like when I think about the place where you are today, and I know you do a lot of work with these groups, and I know that uh, you you tour across the country and, and you speak to uh, to the youth about these types of things. Uh, there, but there's a, still a part of me that that just wonders. I mean, obviously, I get that you're passionate about this, but how hard was it for you to graduate from Yale? And I know you worked in Manhattan for a while, um, and as a corporate lawyer, and I would imagine being paid well. Coming from a working class family and just you, you, I mean, you're a smart enough guy. You can see the writing on the wall. You're like, if I just play this game well, I can be 31 years old and making a quarter million dollars a year, if not more. And uh, I can be driving the nice car. I can be living in a nice house. I can be out with uh, with, with the good looking ladies out on, on, a, on a date, whatever. You, you, know, you, you can see how your life can unfold. How hard was it for you to essentially say no to that? And to to choose this path, I'm not saying you've chosen a path of poverty. I know you still make a living, but to to not go down the, the typical path that somebody graduating from your program would have done. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it. I was never completely sure I was making the right decision when I turned down the corporate law job in New York and then turned down another great corporate law job in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I left feeling like I wasn't happy. Um, because my mind was was preoccupied with other issues, other public policy goals. Um, and I just kind of felt like, you know, I had I had a lot of conversations with my mom where, you know, she would tell me like, look, you buying me a house is not going to make me happy if the price of that is you being unhappy. Right. And oh, she, wow. you know, and, and, and honestly, like there, if she told me like, if she didn't tell me that, I'm not sure I would have left. I probably would have been like, you know, I'm. I'm, I'm going to, you know, stick it out because I want to be there for her. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, it's, it's taken me longer to be able to save up, 
you know, enough money to help her out. But thankfully I'm, I've, I've gotten there. Right. Um, but it would have been a lot easier otherwise. Right. And so her, her confidence in me mattered a lot, but also I just had this kind of this, this belief that I, in some ways I, 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 I wasn't being ambitious enough if I just took the easier path. Right. And, and my life has just been this like series of improbabilities where it's like, you know, why not, you know, shoot for a, something a bit harder, but will pay off more in terms of your own uh, enjoyment and, and your own engagement with your own with your passions. Right. Right. Um, then the and, and certainly like I would say I, I second guess this a lot. Like there were various points over the last five years since I graduated where I look back and I said, man, like maybe I should go back. Um, did I make the right decision? But getting sick, right, be, getting cancer just it really reminded me of, of that I was right to kind of do what I did because there were moments in the past year where I thought I might die, where I might not be able to work the same with the same workload as I have before. And I, I certainly would have been kicking myself if I spent the last five years behind a desk and did not put the work into connecting with people, sharing what I've learned with young people in particular, feeling like I, I, I made some sort of impact, however small on the world. I think if I got sick and looked back at my career and said, you know, you made it to Yale and then all you did was make money, I think I would be I would have been even more devastated by the possibility of dying young because I would have been like, dude, you you didn't you didn't leave anything behind. Right. Aside from some money. And and although that's important, it's not everything. So. um, So. So, yeah, you're glad like you had made this. It wasn't cancer that made you make this decision. But you're saying, though, you're so glad cancer reminded you that the decision you made was the right one. Yeah, it's it certainly validated it to me. Um, so why do you think it is that so many people? Why do we always have to hear this story though? That for other people, they do need cancer, they do need a near death experience, they do need a car accident or whatever it might be to be the impetus that causes them to make that change and to really be true to themselves and to do that thing that is most important to them. Well, a, a lot of it is that you know people who 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 are achieve a lot in our society, right? Whether that's academically or professionally, tend to be people who succeeded because they followed the rules very well. Meaning right. they did what was expected of them, they did what they were supposed to do and they did it well. Um, you know, they did all their homework, they did all their assignments, they studied, they went to work every day on time, they put the work in, they, you know, they met their boss's expectations. So I think sometimes you need to be shaken up to remind yourself that there there are uh, ways of having a really valuable life that don't come with rules. And when you're sick or when you go through some sort of big life change or some traumatic experience, it forces you to remind yourself that like there's a power you have as a person that you that that you didn't get from your degree or from your job because those things didn't help you get through your your this big adversity um and i think being reminded of that gives some people sometimes the confidence they need to just try something different to break the rules to you know um to go off on their own path um and right. and so a lot of it is just a reminder of that that power you have as an individual um but the other reason i think is just because you know, we, 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 we play it safe. A lot of human beings do. And, um, playing it safe means that, uh, you probably kind of suppress the things that you're most passionate or curious about because you don't think that 
you know, that's going to be how you make a living or take care of your kids or whatever. And so when you feel a sense of urgency to do what is most important for you, then you probably are going to look outside of your day job, right? I think you hit the nail on the head when you say important, because that's something I've been giving a lot of thought to lately, where I I love the corporate speaking I do, and I believe that that work is important when I go in and I uh, influence people in a way that will hopefully lead them to a better life. Um, However, I've been also thinking about other important things that I really want to give my attention to. And God, on any given day, it could be global warming, it could be, um, you know, uh, disease in certain countries, it could be um, women's rights. And, And I think, God, you know, when I start thinking about the work I do compared to that, I'm like, you know, that stuff just feels a lot more important. And I and I and I'm now looking for ways to bring more of those things into my life while still doing the other important work, which is the corporate speaking. Um, but I think that that is got to be like the, the big regret that people have, or it's that little um, thing that's always in the back of their mind, which is really just knowing in their heart that the work that they're doing, at the end of the day, really isn't that important. Somebody else could replace them as the individual who figures out uh, what to buy and sell in the stock market. Or somebody else could replace them as the person who, um, I don't know, who, who, who does, uh, you know, who, who, I don't know, I can't think of another example. But like there's so, there's so many people out there that who I meet who are doing jobs where they're, they're like, yeah, you know what, what, what I do doesn't even matter. And I think that's what the, the big, where the big regret comes one day when they realize that what they did didn't matter. Yeah, I mean, relevance is one of the the great motivators I think for for people. And when you feel like you you've been irrelevant, like you haven't made a unique contribution to the world, I think that's a scary thought. And it, it I hope you know it it's it's best when we when we reconcile ourselves with that reality early on in our lives because it just gives us a better chance of of feeling relevant at some point you know yeah so so let me finish off here then one last question before i let you go here with respect to what we're talking about you know what advice would you give to anyone listening to this right now who is thinking about being true to themselves or is thinking about taking a path where they are more relevant um but they feel that fear the fears that you've already spoken about what what would you say to these people well, I think a lot of it, it comes back to, um, and this is advice that I think applies to us regardless of our age or what stage we're in in life is, you know, do you do you have people around you who kind of hold on to the emotions and the principles, the beliefs that you need, but sometimes are not strong enough to hold on to all the time yourself, right? And so what I mean by that is, you know, I think that like a big part of overcoming adversity and and taking risk is about having people in your life who are optimistic and hopeful, especially when you can't be yourself, right? And if right. you recognize that like that being hopeful and optimistic and determined and all the things we need in order to feel confident in ourselves and have a high self-esteem, that that if you recognize that you know we all have our ups and downs in our ability to 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 stay strong on those things um then you need people who can stay strong on those things when you're not able to and i think that's that's something that like you know when we talk about let's say mentorship we often think about it in very kind of like 
corporate or hierarchical terms like it's like oh i'm being mentored by someone who has the job i want to have or the makes the kind of money i wish i could make one day but a lot of mentorship in my mind and in the work that i do is really about people who are going to see when you need them to step in for you when you can't step in for yourself right it's about people who can see your blind spots who understand your weaknesses and when you're discouraged are going to be able to 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 be encouraged right or when you want to give up they're the people who are going to be able to kind of stay strong and and stand by you um so i think that's such a big part of it and i know as we get older and we progress in our careers it almost feels like it's harder and harder for us to meet people so when we don't have those people already in our lives we think to ourselves well i don't know where to find new mentors or new supporters or build a new social network um and i think we have to be like really mindful of the importance of that so that to me is i think the biggest like kind of first step when you're trying to do something new for yourself is who do you have around you and, and do you have the right people that's such great advice i can't tell you how many times in my life where i know i'm about to take my next big leap um or i'm going to make a big change uh in my life and it scares the hell out of me and the first thing i always do and i recognize that i have to do this is in many cases i either have to replace old friendships with new friendships or i just need to expand on the friendships that i, I currently have because you're right you, you can go to a a social event. You could go to someone's house for a barbecue this uh, upcoming summer, and based on the people that you're having conversations with at that event, walk away and feel so invigorated and so excited about the work that you want to do and the impact that you want to have. And especially on the days when you don't have those feelings, when you don't feel as inspired. And I think that's such great advice, and I appreciate you sharing that because um, it's not just about a mentor who tells you how to do something. It's a mentor who just reminds you that, you know, the work you're doing is important and that uh, and that, and that that it matters to the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. So listen, while I let you go here, before I do um, – Jamil, for those who are listening who want to follow you and your world, or um, we didn't even get into a conversation about your book. My God, I have to have you back on the show. But um, <laughs> it's a great read. And, and, and um, for people who want to get your book, who want to follow you or want to get involved with what you're doing, what are some of the areas that they can go to? Yeah, well, I'm I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at the handle uh, Jamil Giovanni, just at my name. And uh you know, the, the book is out in Canada now, anywhere you buy books, Amazon, Chapters, Indigo. It's also published uh, in the U.S. and internationally uh, on May 21st of this year, 2019. And um, I also have a podcast you can find if you just look up The Road Home with Jamil Giovanni. Um, and you can find, you know, a lot of the interviews I do and, and, and different stuff I've done related to the book on there. That's amazing. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. And for those of you who are listening, you got to follow Jamil because he's always up to something new and uh, always making a big impact on the lives of other people. So, Jamil, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. It's been such a, a, a joyful conversation for me, and I know it's been really important for the rest of the people who have been listening. Thank you, Stuart. Um, you know, you're you're one of the great inspiring speakers out there, and it's a, it's a pleasure to have been invited on your show, and I appreciate you uh, having me. Awesome. Well, you just made my day. So thank you so much, and I wish you nothing but the best with whatever happens next. Thanks. The number you have dialed has been changed. The number you have dialed has been Thank you for tuning in to The Stuart Knight Show. We hope you've enjoyed this powerful conversation. People are fascinating, and so are you. And the right questions will prove it.